Good evening. It's Ian Bezik. I am the host of Bezik on Stocks. It's great to have you here with me tonight. Uh, just as a reminder, everything here is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Uh, with that out of the way, I'd like to thank you all for joining. Uh, I was planning on having an episode last week, but my phone was out of commission. So sorry for no show last week, but it's good to be back here tonight. Uh, quite a crazy week in the markets. Uh, obviously, all the Russian Ukraine news uh, is uh, causing people a lot of a lot of stress and turmoil. And as we're recording this, still no idea what's going to happen. I don't know anything that you don't know, so uh, we'll stay away from that topic. And then obviously with the Fed and interest rates, another big question mark. But I figured it'd be a good time to talk about uh, Latin America because the Latin American stocks are actually outperforming. I'm not sure if you've been paying attention, but our indexes have been doing some of the best so far year to date. I believe uh, emerging markets overall as a whole are about flat for the year, which is well ahead of the S&P and obviously way ahead of the NASDAQ. And there's some very positive signs here in Latin America. So uh, it might be nice to talk about something that's actually going up compared to the rest of the market. So I figured that'd be a good topic. And actually what caught my attention was there was this avocado story going around about Mexico and the lack of avocado exports. And uh, the media was making a big deal out of something that wasn't a big deal. And so I figured it'd be a good time to kind of talk about that and kind of things that people might not understand about Mexico and Chile and why uh, why there's an investment opportunity that might uh, that might fly under people's radars. Uh, yeah, so I'll give a little uh, overview of Mexico and Chile, talk about individual companies listed in both markets, and then after that, I'll open the lineup for questions, or if you want to pitch a stock uh, in Latin America, or hopefully specifically in Mexico or Chile, uh, happy to discuss any particular name that you're interested in. But I'll get started talking about Mexico. First, uh, overall, Mexico is the world's 12th largest economy. Uh, about $11,000 a year of GDP in nominal terms, but on a purchasing power uh, parity PPP adjusted basis, $21,000 a year. So the consumer actually has quite a bit of spending power there. Um, contrary to what people might think, the economy has developed uh, quite a bit, like the U.S., and nearly 70% of the economy is services, 30% is industry, only 3% of the economy is agriculture now. So there's kind of this... Uh, maybe the stereotype that you've got the Mexican campesino who's out uh, growing corn or whatever, but uh, Mexico of 2022 doesn't look like that anymore. Uh, the country has had generally neoliberal centrist to right-wing governments over the past 25 years, has been highly successful in fighting poverty. At the turn of the century, you had more than 20% of the country in extreme poverty. Nowadays, only 7% of the country is in extreme poverty. Uh, which is defined as $6 a day of income or less. So like sometimes you hear these statistics of people living in Africa or Central America or whatever on $1 a day. But even in, even at the $6 a day threshold, which is the Mexican government standard, only 7% of the population has access to less than that. Uh, the reason the country has been so successful has been primarily due to NAFTA and now the USMCA, which was the replacement for the NAFTA trade deal. Uh, Mexico's economy primarily nowadays exists as a manufacturing arm of the U.S. and Canada. Uh, in 2020, 80% of Mexico's exports, so fully four out of five things that Mexico exported went to the U.S., 3% went to Canada, uh, 2% went to Spain, 2% went to China, and then everything else was around here. So virtually all of Mexico's economy is selling things to the U.S. and Canada. Um, and as you might expect, given that, Profile, uh, basically all their exports are in manufactured goods as well. So you've got 
In the manufactured goods category, aircraft is the biggest, then auto, cement, healthcare equipment, home appliances, like anything you buy from a company like Whirlpool, or GE, like Maytag, like any of those uh, refrigerators, microwaves, uh, washing machines, all of that's been in Mexico for the past 10 or 20 years now. Uh, huge growth category recently has been healthcare equipment, particularly uh, during the pandemic. People were seeing all the stuff coming in from China and saying maybe we don't want to rely on China for uh, life or death stuff. And so you already had a ton of medical device uh, uh, equipment and gear in Tijuana, and that's ramping up even more now. Those factories are working the three shifts a day, and it's just there's a huge hiring buzz to get people there. Like the airport in Tijuana, their traffic's up 30% this year. It's just, it's a mecca of activity there. Um, in electronics specifically, Mexico is number six in the world for the largest electronics sector, trailing only China, the US, Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan. So that should give you a sense. It's larger than any uh, European country in terms of the amount of electronics that it produces. Uh, anything that you need assembled, like they'll make the raw parts in Asia, but then like the assembly for like TVs, laptops, video game consoles, all that stuff uh, for the Americas happens in Mexico. Uh, as you might expect from having a large and profitable manufacturing sector, this has led to general prosperity for Mexico, the country's investment grade at all three uh, major credit ratings. Credit ratings agencies, foreign reserves are 20% of GDP, which is very high for an emerging market. Debt to GDP is only 50%. Uh, they have an independent central bank that uh, the president can't manipulate. So that's led to stable uh, monetary policy over the years. Inflation is largely stable at 5% for the past decade. Um, as manufacturing goes, it's important to understand that the state's on the border. So anything that touches the U.S. is very wealthy. On a PPP-adjusted basis, actually, some of the Mexican states uh, that touch the U.S., like Tijuana, uh, which would be Baja, Mexico, have higher uh, purchasing power than some European countries. Uh, so the the area along the border has a ton of money. Uh, once you go south of Mexico City, the, the southern part of the country is still quite poor and very underdeveloped, um, with the exception of Cancun. The state Cancun has a lot of money, but... Aside from that, so there's a big difference. Like the northern part of the country is wealthy. The southern part is not so wealthy. Um, let's see. Moving to politics. Uh, that's probably the biggest pushback people give on investing on anything in Mexico. Uh, as I've said, the country has been right wing since there was an economic crisis in the mid-1990s. And since then, they've generally elected uh, right wing or neoliberal presidents. Uh, right now, however, there was a scare in the end of 2018. They elected a figure named Amlo, who is kind of an iconoclast. Kind of, he does his own thing. Uh, like, he's famous for he won't travel outside of Mexico. He won't speak English with with other leaders. Uh, he's a very kind of backwards figure. And a lot of foreigners have not wanted to invest in Mexico because they see him as a throwback to, to uh, the bad Latin American leaders of old. Uh, but his actual policies have been uh, fairly reasonable outside of uh, the energy sector. He's made some blunders, I would say, in the energy sector. But overall, he's he's done fine by investors. He was friends with both Trump and Biden. He's had very good relations with the U.S. Uh, and he's not he's not especially ideological in terms of how the economy runs. Like everyone wants to label everyone that's left of center as socialist, but his policies have been reasonable. He has a seventy percent of approval rating in Mexico now, so. People really loved his handling of COVID. Uh, he reopened the economy the fastest of anyone in the Americas. So the tourism sector came back 
uh, extremely quickly. There's more tourists now in Mexico than there were prior to the pandemic. So yeah, the economy is doing well in Mexico. Uh, and the interesting thing about having a left-wing president now, and uh, Mexico has a six-year presidential cycle with uh, one term term limit, so he can't be reelected. Um, which means that at the end of his term, it's likely uh, that they'll vote for a more right-wing person because usually power tends to swing back and forth. And then, assuming a centrist or a right-wing candidate wins, then there will be no political risk uh, of note in Mexico until 2031 because the current guy is good to foreign investors and then likely the next president will be as well. So I think Mexico, uh, contrary to what people might say, has the best political risk profile of the major Latin American countries now. Which is a that's a contrarian view from what you'd read in the the foreign in the English language press, excuse me. So I think that's part of why Mexico is such an opportunity now. Um, people like to complain about Pemex, uh, Pemex, the state oil company, which is very poorly run and is essentially a, a government jobs program where politicians can use it to give jobs and uh, contracts to their friends, which is true. Uh, oil used to be two-thirds of Mexico's exports in the 1980s, but now it's like 5% of their exports. So it's not particularly relevant to the economy. And all of the oil is in the south, which is uh, poor, the poorer part of the country. And there's not much in the way of uh, things we would invest in there anyway. So it's not really relevant to the uh, bullish thesis at this point. Uh, why bullish on Mexico in general? Uh, the country's been in a bear market since 2013, uh, and it's down more than 50% in dollar terms. Uh, despite that, the economy's grown, the political situation has improved, and now they have this massive rising tailwind with uh, the U.S. manufacturing, thanks to what happened with COVID and people uh, wanting to move their supply chains out of Asia. Uh, Mexico, like of all the countries in the world, Mexico is the most tied to the U.S. economy in terms of uh, it's pattern because 80% of its exports go there. And so anytime the U.S. does stimulus or something to benefit the U.S. economy, Mexico is the next biggest be uh, beneficiary. All the manufacturing plants take off, like uh, all the cars and airplanes and trucks and all that stuff that's made in Mexico. When the U.S. orders more, Mexico has more jobs. Uh, consumer spending, like all the things that Americans have been buying since the pandemic, all the new washing machines and refrigerators, uh, all that sort of stuff uh, directly leads to more sales for for Mexican companies and also tourism. Uh, when American consumers want to go traveling, Mexico's often their first stop. And so we've seen just a tremendous tourism boom since COVID. Uh, also, it helps with remittances, a huge portion. No, not huge, but a significant portion of uh, disposable income in Mexico comes from remittances from uh, family members working in the U.S. And now that there's the labor shortage in the U.S., wages have gone way up. And so family members are sending a lot more money back to Mexico, which uh, increases spending on consumer goods. Um, and the market is cheaper than it looks. The The market is full of a bunch of stodgy companies like telecom companies that uh, tend to not grow and aren't very good businesses. And so people look at the index and say it's kind of expensive and doesn't grow very quickly. Uh, but when you look at individual companies, they stack up quite well on a valuation basis, particularly since, as I said, they're down 50% in aggregate over the past uh, nine years. So that's that's the overview for Mexico. And then I will do the overview for Chile and then I'll discuss some individual companies in both countries. So Chile, unlike Mexico, is not a significant economy on a global stage. It's the 40th largest economy in the world. 
I believe it's only the sixth or seventh largest country in terms of population in Latin America. So uh, it's uh, fairly small. Uh, however, it punches well above its weight uh, internationally since it's the only Latin American in academy that has a large developed uh, pension and institutional financial market. I take that back. Brazil has one as well. But of the Spanish-speaking countries, Chile has the the best financial markets in terms of development. In most Latin American countries, locals just invest in real estate. Like here in Colombia, nobody cares about stocks. Like I try to talk to people about stocks and everyone's just like, what cryptos are you buying? <laughs> what do you think about the NASDAQ stocks? Like even Colombians uh, that, that know finance don't care about their own companies. But in Chile, there's a large domestic market for their their financial instruments and so a lot of companies have gone public you've got good capital markets which means better opportunities for investors uh gdp nominally is eighteen thousand dollars a year but uh purchasing power parity is twenty eight thousand dollars a year which puts chile on par or slightly ahead of countries like italy spain portugal and greece um human development index of 85 percent is very high and i believe there's only two countries in latin america that are rated as very high so uh, if you plot Chile in the middle of Europe, it would be like just like one of the southern European countries in terms of development. Um, it, it's very interesting in contrast to Mexico because basically everything that Mexico exports, Chile has to import. Chile has almost nothing in the way of manufacturing, so they have to buy tons of electronics and automobiles and trucks and oil. And, yeah, so it's kind of an interesting contrast for Chile's exports copper is roughly half of the economy depends on the price of copper of course but uh, somewhere around there next biggest export is fruit which uh, grapes is the key crop but also kiwis apples pears uh, if you think about the seasons like in North America there's a in the summer you can grow all of those sorts of higher value fruits but then in the winter, you can't grow any of them in the U.S., something like apples or pears or grapes. And so Chile, being in the southern hemisphere, is ideal for growing those fruits. And there's not many other countries with the same kind of temperate climate that have stable governments. And so Chile has been able to exploit that and developed a, a great network for exporting those things. So fruit exports are around 10 to 15 percent of GDP, depending on prices. Uh, fish is their next largest export. Uh, Chile was, uh, the Chilean government has an interesting program in terms of they take uh, profits from their copper industry. Uh, when the price is high, the Chilean government taxes it more and then invests in other industries. When the price is low, then they subsidize the copper miners. So it's kind of a an inherent uh, stabilization program. But anyway, so they invested heavily in salmon farming and became the the leader in aquaculture. And now salmon is like 5 to 7% of their exports. I believe there's three or four publicly traded salmon companies in Chile now. It's kind of an interesting model that the government has built there in terms of subsidizing new industries. Other important exports are paper, pulp, and wood products, chemicals, and wine. They, they in Argentina are the big wine producers for uh, South America. Uh, destinations, unlike Mexico, Chile sells to everyone, 30% to China, 15% to the U.S., and then Japan, South Korea, Brazil, and Mexico are all uh, other significant recipients of Chilean exports. So uh, it's a quite a different model than Mexico, which is essentially tied to the U.S.'s fate. Uh, Chile has free trade agreements with everyone and has uh, stayed decidedly neutral in terms of U.S. or Chinese relationships. Um, 
let's see, Chile is AA rated in terms of its credit rating, which is the highest in, I believe, all emerging markets. Uh, very low debt to GDP, uh, highly independent central bank. And like I mentioned, the counter-cyclical monetary policy where the government uh, charges more tax when copper profits are high and lowers taxes when uh, copper is low has led to an extremely stable economy compared to uh, most of their peers and what you normally see in emerging markets. Uh, yeah, so politics, this has obviously been the thing that's caused uh, Chile a ton of problems lately. Uh, or at least the perception with foreign investors. Uh, the country has decided they had a referendum and have decided to write a new constitution. And they also voted for a socialist president this fall, this past fall. And so Chilean stocks got hammered. Uh, and th there is some risk there, but I think foreigners have, uh, have put way too much. They calibrated their risk meter wrong. Uh, for one thing, the old Chilean constitution, which has served the country well in terms of economic development, uh, but it was important to realize that it was written under Pinochet, who was a a hard right, almost libertarian uh, in terms of his economic policy leader, who used authoritarian tactics, including killing opposition. And so Pinochet is now wildly unpopular in Chile. And so a lot of people wanted to rewrite the constitution, not because they they want to pivot the economy so far to the left, but more just because they're embarrassed to have their constitution have come from that era. It'd be like having the U.S. Constitution come from, like, Nixon as president. If you follow my drift, it's just kind of like uh, in a modern uh, uh, society that, like, Chile has now. There's no reason to associate their founding document with Pinochet. And so the Constitution is being rewritten now, but they, the people voted in terms of who would write the Constitution, and they came out with a, a fairly centrist group uh, looking through their proposals. It seems like all of the the more crazy stuff in terms of nationalizing mining has been shot down. Um, and the president they voted for has said that he, he wants a centrist economic policy. Uh, he said on the campaign trail that he's a socialist, but uh, it's pretty clear he means in the European kind of Scandinavian socialist sense, like wanting to be like Norway. The president they voted for, Boric, is 36 years old. Uh, it's kind of just a couple of years older than me. Like you can see his Twitter feed. His Twitter, he's been on Twitter for like ten years, and he posts about the same sort of stuff that that any sort of kind of uh, person my age would in the U.S. Uh, very European view of the world, and he's it's very clear that he's not some communist firebrand like everyone. Any time they hear that a left wing person has been elected in in Latin America, they always think, oh, it's going to be Cuba or it's going to be Venezuela. But I mean, if you spend five minutes reading the guy's profiles or listening to any of his speeches, uh, it's clear he just wants to be the next Norway, which is fine. Uh, I don't know if Chile has enough resources to pull off quite that economic model, but as I mentioned, they're already as wealthy in terms of development as in Italy or Spain is. And so uh, we don't assume that Spain or Italy is going to fall into communism anytime they elect a left-wing government. And yet that seems to be investors' reactions uh, whenever Chile elects a left-winger. It's worth noting that a previous president, uh, Bachelet, uh, that they voted for in two different terms, was also a self-avowed socialist. And yet under her reign, uh, Chile remained the second freest economy in the Americas, according to the Heritage Foundation, trailing only Canada. Uh, the U.S. is number three, by contrast. So even under a previous, quote-unquote, socialist government, Chile remained one of the freest economies uh, in our hemisphere. So I I think the, the political risk is way, way, way overblown. And I've been buying Chilean assets since the recent elections. 
So that covers the overview for Chile. So I'll get into some individual stocks in both countries. Going back to Mexico, uh, my largest positions are in the airports, but I already did a whole episode on the airports. Uh, so I'd advise going back to listen to that because that's my pitch for those. And obviously, if you follow me on Twitter, I talk about the airports all the time. Uh, but yeah, so there's OMAB, PAC, ASR uh, that own three different sets of airports. Uh, I still like them all. I think they're trading higher next six, 12 months. So we'll leave that there for today, but happy to discuss them more in the future. Uh, let's see, FEMSA, uh, ticker FMX, is a Mexican conglomerate, its primary asset. Uh, one second. Its primary asset is 20,000 convenience stores called OXO, O-X-X-O. Uh, in Mexico, uh, convenience stores may not sound that exciting, but uh, it's quite it's quite a phenomenal business. There's if you go to a big city in Mexico, there will be one maybe every uh, I don't know 500 meters, every thousand couple thousand feet walking down a street. Uh, and I mean, they sell the normal convenience store stuff, but you can also pay your rent there. You can pay all your bills. They rolled out digital wallets, so. You can do all your banking stuff through the convenience store. Uh, they've got a loyalty program, so you get more points when you shop there more. Uh, it's a very cool business model. You can receive your remittances from family and friends in the U.S. Um, yeah, so I think it's a good business. and It's also integrated with their major subsidiary, which is Coca-Cola FEMSA, which is the Mexican bottling company for Coke. The biggest one, rather, uh, and so there's a lot of cross sell in terms of them promoting their products. They also own, I believe, 15 percent of Heineken, so there's also cross selling of their beers that way. Uh, they've also, and probably the big knock on FEMSA is they've got a huge M&A program. They've bought pharmacies in Mexico, they've bought pharmacies in South America. They're buying distribution businesses in the U.S. now, and so I think a lot of people would like to see an activist go after them and try to get them to pay a higher dividend or buy back stock or something, because uh, it seems to be kind of an empire builder sort of situation. But it's a good empire, and the core uh, convenience store business is great. So I think it's a nice way to get upside to Mexico. But, uh, but yeah, there are some complaints in terms of capital allocation. Uh, Coca-Cola FEMSA, Ticker KOF. Uh, it's trading around 15 times earnings now, which is reasonable for a bottler. However, I think that undersells their earnings potential. Uh, for one thing, they own the license for all of Venezuela, which has obviously not been earning them any money uh, for many years now due to the economic situation in Venezuela. But at some point, the government will go. And when they bring back a capitalist government, you'll have 40 million new customers. Uh, so that will be a big bump to earnings when that happens. Like, just keep this in mind, like one day when you hear there's a new government in Venezuela, look at KOF stock because it's going to jump uh, big time when that happens. Uh, also, profit margins have gone down just because the economies have been weak in Latin America for a while. Uh, in early 2010s, KOF was earning a 10% operating margin. That's fallen to 6% now. If you get the operating margin back to 10%, you nearly double earnings. And as I said, it's already trading at 15 times earnings now. Throw in a little bit of currency appreciation. I think earnings could at least double, if not triple. Uh, and you get a stack, that, I think it's a 55 now that could easily be at 125 or 150 in a few years, uh, which isn't bad for something like a, a bottling company where your downside's pretty limited. Uh, Walmart, Walmix, uh, this one does, it has a US ADR, but uh, on the pink sheets, so use the the Mexican stock exchange for that one. But obviously it's the, the Mexican and Central American affiliate of Walmart. 
it's even larger and I believe it's three and a half percent of all Mexican GDP occurs through sales at Walmex. Uh, it's also the third largest e-commerce player in Mexico, trailing Amazon and Mercado Libre. Uh, their e-commerce sales were growing at, uh, I believe, over 200% a year in 2020. They had already set up all the, the shop online and pick up its door and shop through WhatsApp prior to the pandemic. And no one had really cared, like in 2019. But obviously in 2020, uh, it became a huge driver for them because they're competing against these little corner stores and uh, traditional markets in Mexico that obviously didn't have any ability to handle the pandemic. And so I think Walmart took a ton of share uh, during that time that they'll continue to benefit from going forward. The stock didn't really go anywhere from 2010 to 2020. Now over the past year, it's finally gone up, I think, 40%, but arguably it could still go up a lot more. I think Walmart US went from 10 times earnings to 30 times earnings once people figured out that the e-commerce business there had, had started to work out. So a uh, similar re-rating on Walmart could be very profitable. Uh, let's see, there's ba- Bachoco, uh, ticker IBA, which is Mexican uh, chicken, eggs, and pork products. Uh, this one's a deep value name, trading at around, what is it, seven or eight times earnings now, three times uh, enterprise value to EBITDA. I've written on this one extensively, so I'd refer you to that. Uh, the issue is just management has 40% of the market cap in cash and doesn't spend the cash. Like they're waiting for a depression, to, I guess, to buy assets on the cheap. And so the market doesn't really give them any appreciation for the cash that they have, but it's a very stable business selling chicken and their book value goes up two or three bucks a share every year. It's selling under book value now. And so it seems like a very safe alternative to cash because you'll get seven or eight percent a year of appreciation of the underlying assets if nothing happens. And then uh, if the family that controls it decides they want to take it private or they make a big acquisition or they pay a 10 or 15 dollar share special dividend or something, you could have a uh, overnight instant revaluation. Uh, Kimberly Clark, Mexico. This has a U.S. pink sheets, but it's not actively traded. So again, uh, better to trade in Mexico. It's the the subsidiary of Kimberly Clark U.S. Uh, stock hasn't done anything for I think five years now. Um, profit margins have been an issue. I believe they they have to import their wood products, and so they've been getting hit on on costs there and they didn't really enjoy any pandemic bump either actually the stock went down during the pandemic uh it might be a value name but i haven't owned it in a couple of years so uh, it's one that i should look at again but something that might be interesting for people that want defensive names uh bolsa b-o-l-s-a-a is the ticker this is one i owned but no longer own and one that has gotten some buzz on twitter it's the mexican stock exchange uh and I own this and thought it should be a good business, but then unfortunately a second stock exchange came up and has taken, I believe, about 20% market share, uh, which doesn't sound like a big deal. Like if the primary one still has 80% market share ever, and as I mentioned, the Mexican uh, index has been in a bear market since 2013. There have been essentially no new IPOs for many years. Uh, so it's just been very dull because when stocks go down, no one really wants to trade. And so having a, a bad stock market and then uh, having competition come up at the same time has just been a bad mix. So profits have been flat uh, and the stock's gone down. Uh, I still like the idea. I, I love stock exchanges if you follow my work, um, but I don't own that one now uh, because just, yeah, I don't know how much their competition is going to hit it. Um, yeah, and there's better ideas there, I think. 
Uh, another one that I haven't owned yet, but will probably own sometime in the future is Beckel, which is uh, owns Cuervo Tequila. It was supposed to go public in the U.S. in 2016, uh, but they canceled their U.S. IPO and Trump won the presidency in the U.S. and decided to list in Mexico instead, which I guess was understandable given the times, but it's unfortunate because I think if it were listed in the U.S., it would get a ton of investors' attention. Tequila has been the best performing spirit category over the past decade. Uh, obviously, Brown Foreman with their Eredura has done very well with tequila, and now I think Cuervo will follow them as well. Uh, they've run into some issues with market share uh, in terms of, I think, other people have been running more marketing than they have, uh, but management has a plan to try to fix that. I know some smart people that own the stock. Uh, it's probably something that I'll, I'll own sooner or later. Uh, one more that's got a lot of Fintoit buzz that I don't like, but other people do, is Consorcio ARA, uh, ticker ARA in Mexico. Uh, it looks very cheap in terms of selling it a big, uh, it's a home builder, sorry, uh, selling it a big discount to book value. And uh, for demographic reasons, uh, there's a lot of, like, similar to in the US, there's a lot of Mexican people still living at home that should, should form homes uh, soon. And there wasn't much home building over the past few years. So in theory, demographically, there should be a boom in Mexico. Uh, in practice, I think a lot of people that own the stock might not be familiar. The government used to subsidize suburban style housing, like in the U.S., where you'd build 500 houses on a highway, like on a new highway interchange at the edge of the city. So that used to be the model. And the home builders bought a ton of land on the outskirts of, of the big Mexican cities to take advantage of all the uh, government subsidies. And then abruptly, the government changed the subsidy law to promote apartments in the middle of cities, uh, brownfield developments, rather than uh, building new uh, single-family homes in the middle of nowhere. And so the home builders got stuck with just mountains of land uh, that no longer had any value without the government subsidies. Uh, most of the Mexican home builders went bankrupt. Uh, when I was working at the hedge fund, one of the uh, stocks, one of the bonds, uh, we bought distressed bonds of one of the home builders uh, just because, yeah, they'd gone bankrupt. Another one turned to accounting fraud to try to keep the business going, and the SEC actually busted them. And this is one advantage of investing in Mexico versus maybe investing in Asia that the SEC investigated, and some Mexican executives went to jail and paid fines, um, which is fairly unusual that emerging market companies get busted. And the SEC actually uh, prosecutes them. But anyway, the home builders, yeah, they, they ran into this problem. They're sitting on all this land that's pretty useless. And Ara in particular has a ton of land around Cancun that's been sitting dormant for many years. And so I'm skeptical that their book value is, is actually money good. Like I think if they tried to sell a lot of their land and also the shopping malls that they owned, that uh, they get less for it than stated book value. So I don't know, maybe the stock works out, but I don't think it's nearly as cheap as as other people might. Uh, so yeah, that's a quick rundown of some major listed Mexican companies turning into Chilean ones. Uh, there's much less available here. I believe there's only 10 publicly listed in uh, Chilean companies that are listed in New York. So not nearly as many options. And the, the Mexican market, uh, if you have interactive brokers or uh, some of the other major retail brokerages, you can buy Mexican stocks directly and they'll, cu uh, they'll custody them for you. Uh, but the Chilean market does not permit foreign brokerages. You have to open an account in Santiago. And because of that, it's hard for most people, like unless you're a hedge fund, uh, like, unless you're an institution, it's hard for most people to buy Chilean stocks that are listed only in Santiago. 
So the the pool of stocks that's available is a lot smaller. Um, but anyway, the so I uh, yeah actually in Chile I own ECH, which is the main ETF. Because uh, that gives access to some of the consumer stocks that simply aren't listed in the U.S. Um, in addition to that, I own BCH, which is uh, Banco de Chile, which is their most profitable bank. It's an emerging market bank, so not uh, nothing too exciting there. I think it's around what eleven times earnings now. Consistently earns very high returns on equity. Typically pays a five to six percent dividend. Uh, I expect they'll get a lot more business uh, as mining uh, really gets cooking. The price of copper has doubled, more than doubled since COVID. Also, uh, Chile is one of the world's largest lithium producers. If the green revolution is going to happen, like uh, the, uh, the the EV proponents say, like the amount of batteries we need, you need tons of copper and tons of lithium for every battery. And so Chile is one of your most stable, uh, reliable countries where you can mine for that stuff. Like as opposed to mining in Bolivia or mining in Africa. And so I think Chile is going to have a massive mining boom. And I understand people are worried about the new government. However, uh, I don't own any of the mining companies in Chile uh, because I, I don't know how the mining laws will work out. But if you own consumer companies or you own a bank, I don't think it matters because whether the mining profits go to mining shareholders or whether it goes to the government, which is unspent, through whatever programs for uh, taxpayers, uh, the money ends up in the economy regardless. So I think it's uh, close to inevitable that we'll be buying way more copper and lithium from Chile over the next five or 10 years. And that's going to benefit all the consumer facing companies there. So largest bank uh, seems like an obvious place, CCU. There's the large beer company, I believe it has 65% market share of Chilean beer. Uh, it's also the Pepsi bottler for Chile. Uh, exports wine, uh, it's uh, Gato Negro, which is available in the U.S. and elsewhere. It's their main wine brand for export. Um, they export Pisco, which is a, a grape spirit. Uh, I, I think it's a good business. I mean, beer in general is a good business, and you don't have nearly the same craft threat in Latin America that you've had elsewhere. Uh, I believe it's trading around 14 times earnings now, and earnings are depressed. Uh, so to earn more than that in good times, you had a tender offer to buy up some of the company, I believe 18 and a half or 19 recently. So uh, I see the stock selling under that price is very attractive because you just had smart money that was willing to pay more than that. So I, I really like CCU. And then AKO uh, is the Coke bottling company. Uh, there's two classes of that stock. I would only touch the Bs because the As are extremely liquid, so I would stick to the B class. Uh, but yeah, it's another bottling company. Uh, not too much to say about that one, although if people want to talk about that one more, but not too exciting. I think CCU is the most interesting of the Julian companies listed now. Um, yeah, so that's my quick overview of Mexico, Chile, and some individual listed stocks in both companies. So I'll open the line up if anyone wants to uh, ask about anything I presented or pitch a stock in Latin America, go right ahead. All right. You are up, Lucas. Good evening. Lucas, can you hear me? 
There you go. Sorry. Um, yeah, I needed no to. Myself. Yeah. But, again, thanks for having me. I just wanted to say hi. And, um, you know, I, I just came down from, I just came back up from Brazil yesterday night, uh, which was an interesting trip. Um, everyone is massively pessimistic about their presidential election, which is coming up in October. Mm-hmm. Um, I've met with, you know, several family offices down there and, and the, the general comment was we have the choice between two psychopaths. Um, so <laughs> that was the thinking there. Having said that, you know, um, on the commodity space, I think there's kind of Petrobras and Vale available. Petrobras being an oil company, Vale being an iron ore producer. And, you know, both are trading at probably half the multiples of international counterparts. Um, you know, and, and so there's a, there's a nice discount there. For anyone who's interested, uh, that'll be the first kind of thing I'd suggest uh, anyone take a look at. Um, and secondly, there's two merchant acquirers which are listed in the U.S., which you're very familiar with, which is Pagseguro and Stone, uh, which have both been decimated probably you know, between 90 to 80 percent for both stocks in the last couple um, couple months. And there, there's a big challenge with the rising funding costs. In Brazil, um, the Brazilian you know interest rate went from two seventy five to two to ten seventy five, and probably going to go to twelve. Um, but anyone who thinks that things turn around in Brazil in the next few years, uh, you know, and, and the rates fall down again, um, then I, I think there's some interesting upside there as well. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with Stone. Uh, I started buying around twenty. So, uh, what's the <laughs> what's the old adage? A stock that's down ninety percent is one that was down eighty percent and then gets cut in half again. So, <laughs> right, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I like the I like the story for Stone, uh, but but yeah, like you mentioned, it's just it's brutal trying to adapt to an interest <laughs> rate that's gone up uh, seven hundred basis points that quickly because they rely on short term funding. It's just you, you can't raise you can't put that cost through to consumers so quickly. Yeah, no, but having said that, I can report the terminals are there and they're actually working. Um, so I've used many of them. Excellent. Yeah, that's good to hear. I, I haven't been to Brazil yet. It's my one country in Latin America that I still need to visit. So Yeah, so the, 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 there's, there's both Pax Seguro and Stone. And then there, the two other big ones are Cielo and Rede. And those are the two market share donors, if you will, and Pax Seguro. And uh, Stone are the, the kind of the market share beneficiaries. Yeah, and how did you see, like, in terms of, uh, is it almost all still on-premise payments, or is, uh, how's adoption going in terms of being totally e-commerce? So I'm not not sure what you mean. Uh, I, I you know I paid in stores, um, mm-hmm. s- small and large, and again the general pattern was the smaller stores probably had uh, Stone and Paxaguda. The larger ones probably still had uh, Ciela and Redo. Redo. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense, kind of like how Square in the beginning was more small businesses and then over time branched That, that seems to be the case. And, and you know, I, I tried to tease out, like, I, I would ask every merchant why Stone, why Paxaguda, uh, but I, I, I think my limited Portuguese was somewhat, you know, everyone had an explanation. Well, it's better for this or the other, but no one could give me like a really clear answer. So, yeah, that makes sense. And in terms of the presidential election, 
I understand. I, I wouldn't want to vote for either of those candidates either if I were Brazilian. Uh, but how does it really get much worse than here? I mean, if you get more of the same, I mean, it's no worse than I mean, electing the incumbent just gives you more of the same. And then under Lula, the, the Brazilian economy actually did fairly well. You can argue that that was just luck because commodities mm -hmm. went up yep. when he was yep. in power. But it's not like Lula was a disaster for foreign investors. And so I think regardless of who wins, probably just having a, the knowing what happens is better than being afraid of what might happen, right? I think so. Um, you know, I mean, the, the polls clearly showed Lulu ahead. And unless the polls are massively wrong, you know, it's it's a Lulu victory. Um, I would say Brazil, you know, I, I, it's my second time there. I was there 11 years ago. Uh, Sao Paulo looks a little bit more shabby. You know, Paulista Avenue, which is one of the, the kind of the, the main downtown avenues, is full of uh, homeless encampments, which was not the case 11 years ago. Um, so, you know, it, it does look like things have taken somewhat of a turn for the worse. Oh, and before I forget, uh, you mentioned FEMSA. There's also there's an OXO on every corner in Brazil as well. Oh, wow. I didn't. Yeah, I, I know they're coming <laughs> here. There's some here in Colombia, but I didn't know they're in Brazil now as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they, they, they are clearly there. I mean, I, I don't know what their presence is in terms of Brazil versus Mexico, but... You know, Brazil is a huge country, and and they're they're definitely in every corner. Yeah, the last I read, there's almost twenty thousand in Mexico and only like seven hundred internationally. So, uh, if they can make the concept work in other countries, the potentially a huge footprint. Yeah, um, the other you know the other stock I think that's somewhat worth looking at would be Azul, which is a low cost point-to-point uh, -point carrier in uh, Brazil. That's and, the one that was founded by the JetBlue uh, founder. That's right, right. David Neiman. Yeah. David Neiman, yeah. the the man who starts like airlines in his spare time, and he has ten kids on top of that. Like I, I don't know where he finds. That's it. amazing. <laughs> yeah, that's all I got for you. Uh, what's the story? I mean, um, yeah, I know. Obviously, Avianca went bankrupt, and then the Chilean one went, land went bankrupt. So, is it just t kind of taking share from the incumbents as they're struggling to get back from COVID? It's it's also connecting, you know, small. It's it's mainly domestic flights, right? Um, yep. So it's it's flying to less developed parts of the country at a lower price point, uh, and it's, you know, it's largely also competing against you know buses and and that kind of transportation. Yep, that makes sense. Probably not one for me because I, I already have uh, more than a healthy exposure to the airports. But yeah. For other people, <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for listening. I always appreciate your comments. So, yeah. Thanks for having Good luck. Good luck. Bye. Bye. All right. Gary, you are up next. Hi, Ian. Thanks for doing this again. And great to have you back on. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, I am. Thank you. I have two quick questions for you. One All right, is, go ahead. Uh, I'm curious what your feelings are about prospects for Latin America if the U.S. and European markets don't do well going forward because of inflation, because of Russia, Ukraine. Um, in other words, do you think that uh, Latin America could outperform? And also, I'm curious what your feelings are on Latin American energy companies. Um, and I noticed that uh, 
Ecopetrol or Ecopetrol is uh -huh. mostly in Colombia, and I've never heard you talk about it. Okay, yeah, that's a good point and uh, a good observation. Uh, yeah, so I'd start off by saying that, yeah, I think you're already starting to see that uh, there can be some outperformance for uh, emerging markets. Let's see, I'm bringing up the, let's see, so Mexico is flat year to date, not up, not down. Brazil is up 17% year to date. Uh, Chile is... Chile is up 12% year-to-date. Uh, Colombia is up 8% year-to-date. And Peru is up 16%. And meanwhile, the... Let's see. And the U.S. is down 9%. So, yeah, already uh, fairly significant outperformance for the Latin American markets versus the U.S. and uh, Europe as well. And I think, uh, like you said, I think inflation is the key issue there in terms of the Latin American countries, with the exception of Mexico, which is the one that's flat for the year. But the other Latin American countries, they're all commodity exporters of one kind or another, like Chile is uh, copper and uh, agricultural products, like fruit and wine. Uh, Colombia is oil exports. Uh, Brazil, you've got iron, all sorts of metals, agriculture, uh yeah, Brazil exports a ton of raw resources. Yeah, and so if you're having an inflationary crisis caused by commodities, right, that's great news for the emerging markets because finally they can sell uh, coffees up a lot, which uh, Brazil sells coffee, Colombia sells coffee. Uh, so like that inflation is causing economic problems in the U.S. and Europe, but that's more more money for farmers, more money for miners, more money for loggers here. And those are still large portions of the economy locally. Like copper in Chile is half their economy. And so when the price of copper doubles, you're looking at half of their, their, their exports. Like that doubles. And that goes straight into government revenue because the government collects a huge chunk of that. And so the government spends more on social programs. They subsidize other industries. Uh, they do more for the universities and healthcare. So it has a huge positive effect on the local economy. Uh, yeah, and so if if we're in a new commodity up era uh, where we have uh, supply shortages for a while in this kind of era that we're having, like I think people are still thinking it's transitory. Like, you look at interest rates and inflation expectations, and, like people say the Fed's going to hike a bunch this year, next year, but then interest rates are just going to stop at 2% and inflation's going to go away. If that happens, that won't be good for emerging markets, but... But if we have this inflationary environment where copper and oil and gold and uh, agricultural products are up for a few years, that will be very good for emerging markets, uh, but it will be a problem for, for the U.S. and Europe, which uh, don't benefit from higher commodity prices. Okay. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, your other question. Uh, yeah, the energy companies, I think they'll do fine. Um, I just... I don't own many of them because I prefer to get my exposure in countries where the rule of law is better. Uh, just because when if a government decides to cause problems for for companies, it usually goes after stuff that's easy to to expropriate, stuff like natural resources. Uh, like if you look at what's happened with Chile since they had their their last election, they talked about uh, siphoning off more of the mining profits for the government, but no one talked about uh, regulating the beer company or regulating the soft drinks. Like, uh, there's sectors of the economy that, that do fine regardless of what the government does, and then there's others that are more at risk of, of expropriation. And so, 
when I combine an oil company like Exxon or Canadian uh, Natural, where I see very little political risk, I would I tend to prefer to get my energy exposure that way. Uh, Echo Patrol specifically, uh, the knock on them is they don't have much in the way of oil reserves. I think they only have a couple of years of, of proven wells left. Uh, and presumably they'll drill for more, uh, but depending on who Columbia elects, maybe the government says no more drilling in the Amazon, and then uh, who knows? Uh, Echo Patrol does own the refining and pipelines in Columbia. It's like near integrated, so uh, it will still make money regardless. Like even if Columbia runs out of oil, it stops producing oil, it will still make money just because it, it owns the pipelines and refineries and stuff. Uh, but uh, it's kind of corrupt. Uh, the, the presidents always use it to give jobs to a lot of their friends and family. So I'd rather own the banks in Colombia because they're uh, a lot more driven by profit motives rather than uh, keeping the government happy motive. Okay. Yeah, thanks. And on a related question, I'm just curious what you think about the Russia-Ukraine issue right now and whether or not that's going to have a large effect on energy or the market as a whole. Yeah, so I don't know anything that you don't know in terms of whether Putin's going to invade or not. I don't uh, have many contacts there. I certainly don't speak any local language there. So uh, all I know is what you can read in, in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times. Uh, in terms of impact on energy, yeah, it might, but uh, my bullish view on energy longer term is is that we're having a supply shortage because of the government restrictions on new drilling and the ESG constraints where even companies that could drill for more oil, companies like uh, BP and Shell and all that have good balance sheets and in the past would have uh, drilled for oil, they're now building wind or solar plants instead. And so I think you're just going to see a delayed uh, supply response, even with oil at 90, it's taking a while for new drilling to kick in. Like There's a lot less drilling still now than in 2017 when oil was at 60. So that, that's why I'm bullish on oil, but uh, geopolitics, I mean, maybe oil goes up 10 or $20 if, if there's a hot war there, uh, but it would probably end whenever whenever they make peace. Uh, so yeah, I'm not factoring it heavily into my analysis. Okay, thanks. Mm-hmm. Let's see, anyone else want to hop online? All right, have to. <sighs> Uh, hi, yeah. I have a question on Mexico. Uh, of the companies you have mentioned, uh, is there any of them that can do well regardless of the Mexico uh, economy, like regardless of the general condition? The reason why I ask is uh, since you said Mexico is joined with the U.S. on the hip, uh, very much dependent on how the U.S. economy is doing. And I feel the, the real economy is really in a terrible shape. So it's very possible in the next six or 18 months that we are in some recessionary condition in the U.S. So um, maybe can you comment on this? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'd say uh, starting off, the, uh, of the two countries I talked about tonight, you might prefer Chile uh, in general in that case because Chile is not uh, really tied to the U.S. economy very much. 
And uh, so particularly if, we, if the U.S. goes into a recession because of high energy prices, because of inflation, because the Fed has to hike interest rates a lot of times to combat high uh, energy prices and high commodity prices, I think Chile would outperform Mexico pretty significantly. Uh, that said, it, stocks could do well regardless of economic conditions. Uh, the airport should do fairly well. Uh, passenger traffic is not... Uh, too tied to the economy. The Mexican economy went into recession in 2015, I think, and passenger traffic was still up. Uh, they did pretty well. Uh, like In terms of financial crisis, they bounced back faster than just about everything else in Mexico. Uh, a new company that I just bought and that I'll be writing up on Sunday uh, called Rotoplast, which makes water tanks, water pipes, uh, uh, drinking fountains, like all, all your water infrastructure. I think that's a very good, uh, it's pretty recession-proof. Uh, at least the main business in terms of, of water treatment and purification uh, should be pretty, I mean, people drink the same amount of water regardless of what the economy is doing. I think it's a very cool company. The management made a lot of changes, have doubled their return on invested capital over the past two years. Uh, and they've got a plan to double revenues over the next four years. So I think it's selling. If their turner, if the if the self improvement plan that they're operating works, they'll be selling it twelve or thirteen times 2024 earnings, and that's crazy cheap for a water company. And as it is, they're selling it around twenty two times pre COVID earnings. Uh, I think I think once people discover this company, it's a uh, water tends to get very good multiples. Uh, uh, when it's listed in the U.S. or Europe, um, yeah, it's the ESG. It was the first company in Latin America to issue ESG bonds. I think all the sustainability indexes are going to eat it up. And Investor Relations has uh, started trying to market the company overseas. So I think that's a very interesting one. And I'll talk more about it on Sunday. That's ticker Agua in Mexico. Uh, let's see anything else. The Erdes is a H-E-R-D-E-Z. It's a packaged foods company in Mexico. That one should be immune to economic problems. The stock sold off a lot recently due to the supply chain and inflation problems, but that one should do well. I might buy that one actually again. I owned it a few years ago. I'm looking at it again because it's come down a lot over the past few months. It sells like pasta and uh, canned tuna and uh, hot sauce, uh, mayonnaise, you know, stuff like that. It's the largest Mexican packaged food um no, that's not true. The bread company is bigger, but so uh, it's the largest of like the condiments and canned products companies. So I think that's good. And Kimberly Clark, Mexico, the toilet paper and soap one would be immune to economic problems as well. Is there any Mexican company among the ones you have mentioned that can benefit from the wage inflation in the U.S.? That's an interesting question. Um, that is an interesting question. That would benefit uh, a little uh, to some degree. Something like FEMSA will benefit because they receive remittances from the U.S. And so, company as people as people that are working in the U.S., like Mexicans, they go to the U.S. to work and then send money back to their family. Uh, that money flow should grow. That would help companies like uh, Western Union and MoneyGram as well. Um, Let's see who else would benefit. Is the chicken company um, gonna benefit on the margin? Um, because I, I'm thinking when you do, what they need to process the chicken. There, it's 
quite labor intensive, right? Oh, I'm just guessing here. Would that be、uh-huh. a good one? Yeah.、Um... I'm not sure how much. I don't think they export much from Mexico to the U.S.、Uh, a third of their sales are in the U.S., but they have、uh, they own farms and factories in Mex in the U.S. for their U.S. sales. So I'm not sure if there's any labor arbitrage there. So I think all of their facilities are in like Arkansas and、uh, Texas.、Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if they can export from Mexico to the U.S. to take advantage of cheaper labor. Yeah.、Uh, Thank you. Hmm. That's a good question. I'll keep thinking about it. It hadn't occurred to me. So, thank you for bringing that up.、Yeah. Let's see. Anyone else want to hop on? All right.、Uh, if no one else wants to hop on, I want to thank you all for joining us tonight. And. Appreciate all the listeners, all the support, and、uh, good comments and questions. And we'll be back next week. So look forward to talking to you again then. Have a great evening. Bye.